Hi, I'm your host, Susan Nay. Welcome to the podcast series, HR Inside Out. It's a series designed to help you demystify HR and the human resource processes. We're going to talk about people management and get the goods on and see how all this stuff works. You're going to hear from everyday heroes and get their perspectives as we touch on a wide variety of topics, topics that impact us in our work and in our work environments. You'll find nuggets for your treasure chest of learning. Hopefully you'll discover insights for your personal and your professional growth. I'm glad you're here. I suspect it's because you want to be the very best version of yourself, your personal best, and that you get understanding these systems and processes will help you on your journey, on your path. You ready to dare to soar? Want to join me at flight school? Let's do this. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, welcome to the podcast series, HR Inside Out, Demystifying HR and People Management. My guest on today's podcast is James Ridge, author of the book, Welcome to the Hall, A Practical Guide for Municipal Leaders. James has recently retired from local government, but still very much active. I'll share details in just a moment. Welcome, James, and thank you for saying yes to being here with us today. Thanks so much, Susan. I'm really looking forward to it. This is going to be fun. First, I'd like to share a little bit about you and then delve into your book and learn a little bit more about your leadership experiences through your career. So in your LinkedIn profile, you know that you've had a long and happy career meandering, I love the word, around the public sector. And in the course of those meanderings, you've had the privilege to serve in leadership roles in municipal government, provincial government, and in higher education. You've also served Canada in uniform for almost a decade as a military police officer. Thank you. More specifically, because you really humble yourself through that very limited overview, um, you're currently the president of James Ridge Consulting. You've also been the city manager with the city of Burlington in Ontario, the principal of UBC Vantage College, the associate vice president and registrar at the University of British Columbia, a deputy city manager with the city of Vancouver, the chief administrative officer with the district of North Vancouver, executive director of information technology and of the municipal licensing and standards with the city of Toronto, the director of the Ontario Crime Control Commission and the manager of policing standards with the Ontario provincial government and a lieutenant captain and major with the Canadian Armed Forces. Wow. You completed an executive program in corporate finance with the London School of Economics. You did your master's degree of public administration with Queen's, your master's of philosophy at the University of Manitoba, and your bachelor of philosophy at McMaster. Again, another wow. <laughs> You're now the owner of a thriving consulting firm that you work with wonderful clients in all three levels of government and also in higher education. You have shared that your areas of focus include government relations, organizational reviews, IT service delivery models, IT strategy, executive coaching, and helping clean up IT projects that have gone a bit sideways. You note, and I have to agree, there are a surprising number of those out there. And oh my goodness, they can be messy. 
<laughs> they sure can. <laughs> Your recent clients include the First Nations Tax Commission, the City of Burnaby, the City of Burnaby IT Department, Ecom 911, the Justice Institute of BC and the District of Squamish. And I'm sure there's lots more, but those are the ones that, that I'd noted. You add, and I don't consider a shameless plug, you spent much of 2019 writing Welcome to the Hall, a practical guide for municipal leaders, which can be purchased at the Municipal World website. And I'll make sure that that, connect, that, that uh, link is on the web, or our show notes. Uh, it's a superb book for members of council, municipal staff, people interested in municipal government, people who live in municipalities, people live, who live in rural communities who drive into <laughs> municipalities. <laughs> <laughs> friends, family, small children, and pets. Okay, I'm not sure about that one, but okay, we'll go with it. It's only $29.95, less than the price of the movie, and it is absolutely excellent. I highly recommend it. You are an avid global birder. You've had the good fortune to see 1,102, wow, species in 39 countries. You call it a geeky hobby, but share that it does get you to some of the planet's most glorious wild places. A subject for another podcast, I think, at some point. <laughs> I could certainly do one on that. <laughs> and I, I, love, I love your raven and your, and your branding for your <laughs> consulting firm. You're currently serving as a board member on the Greater Victoria Police Victim Services, a wonderful organization supporting victims of crime and trauma in Victoria. You're an occasional faculty on the joint initiative between the Local Government Management Association and Capilano University and their Municipal Administrator Training Institute. You and I have worked on managing people in local government and I very much enjoyed that time working with you. About every few months, you write an article in Municipal World Magazine. The most recent one, I'm not sure it's most recent, but it's current, is why the golf course in your community is a ticking time bomb? And is your climate change declaration real or just a sham? Take the test. You definitely like provocative titles. I <laughs> do, for, yes. For your articles. <laughs> uh -huh. You note that you and, and Donna live in the Bear Mountain community in Langford, BC. You recently saw a pot of orcas while on a bike ride, which sums up why you live there. And I love Victoria, so I'm, I'm quite envious. I am so incredibly grateful that you continue to be available to the world as a consultant. And as I wrote my own review of the book, you are one of the most respected CAOs that I've had the privilege to get to know. And I'm just thrilled that you said yes to being on today's podcast. Thank you so much, Susan. Thanks for those kind words. When I hear my eclectic career summarized like that, I realize uh, what a strange journey it's been, but it's been a, a, a really wonderful one. So I, I thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast to share some thoughts. Well, I'm, I'm, I know our listeners are thrilled to be able to hear a little bit more about the book, your leadership. And so let's just get going on that. So I really wish that I'd read the book before I actually started working within local government. Um, I moved into the sector from post-secondary and know how hard it was to learn everything the hard way. Um, you have seen and, and dealt with a great deal in your years. And again, I'm glad that you're sharing all of that expertise uh, through your consulting. I recently listened to the podcast that you did shortly after you'd written the book. Now that's through Municipal World and it's called Tales of Municipal Challenges and Leadership. So I know the why of your decision to write the book. 
but the listeners are not likely to, to know that. So I'm going to start with that question. What prompted you to write Welcome to the Hall? I think there are a number of motivations. Um, the first was kind of personal. I've long believed that um, there's there are important sort of phases to somebody's career. There's the apprentice and learning period where you're sort of building your skills and understanding the field you're in. And there's a mastery period where you're uh, you're, you're really refining your expertise and, and your skills. Uh, but the, the, the final phase and perhaps the most important is the is, is the teaching and mentoring phase. And, uh, uh, and I'm certainly at that point in my career after that long, strange, eclectic uh, uh, <laughs> work experience all over the public sector. Um, so I really did want to share. I, I, I've had the good fortune to work in you know, four different municipalities in a wide range of different roles. Um, and, and I've had the fortune to work with some really good elected officials, wonderful staff. And, and I wanted to share what I've, what I've, uh, uh, what I've experienced and what I've learned. And I feel I have a certain professional and, and obligation to do that as well. Uh, but I also really wrote the book because I couldn't find one out there like it. Um, there's some great books on municipal government. Uh, you know, I, I chatted not long ago with George Cuff, who's written excellent books on council staff relations and governance and leadership. But I didn't see a primer for somebody who is considering running for office or considering going into a senior position in municipal government that really covers the whole breadth and depth of uh, what I think are important things for somebody to know before they step into municipal government. So, so that was part of my motivation. I felt there's just a gap out there. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and I have, and it's a wonderful thing, I've heard from many people who've said exactly what you said, I wish I had this book before I ran for council or before I, uh, uh, you know, stepped into a senior leadership role in municipal government. My final reason is uh, one that I really, really sort of go on at some length about in the book, and that is, it, municipal governments have by far the most powerful and important tools for combating climate change and for mm -hmm. uh, both mitigating climate change and uh, they're clearly responsible for climate change adaption, uh, adaptation in ways that uh, other levels of government aren't. And, and that is such an important responsibility and so much of it falls so heavily on municipalities. Um, we're way past the point if we were ever at the point where you, you, you you, you have to do this well. You, if you're going into municipal government, you have huge responsibility on your shoulders. Individually and collectively, municipalities are the ones who are going to address our climate change challenges. And, uh, and for that reason, I really want people to be serious about that. I really want people to be good at their jobs. And I want them to know, you know, what tools they have and how they focus on climate change. So those were, those were my big motivations, some personal, some just there's a gap out there, but perhaps most importantly, municipalities are going to lead the way on climate change and, and, and need to take that really, really seriously and do it well. And I've got some specific questions on exactly that a little bit further on in our time together, um, because I, I know that I think there's a lot of confusion about um, the responsibilities of local governments and uh, climate change is, is just one very small, well, not very small, but one, one component um, so this podcast will help people understand a little bit more about what, what we do. Um, just a plug for Municipal World, um, both that that's where you can purchase a copy of your book and listen to the podcast that I just referred to, but you can also read really great articles written by experts like George Cuff and, and of course yourself um, in this full spectrum of municipal government. You just wrote one recently, if I recall, on preparing for the journey to recovery, recovery from the pandemic. 
any tips for listeners from that article that you could share, like nuggets? Because uh, we indeed are at the point where, thank heavens, we're finally, I hope, beginning to recover from uh, this very, very difficult period in our lives. Yeah, um, I, I think we're certainly learning a lot as we come out of the pandemic after almost a year and a half. I, I truly believe that many of the longstanding sort of assumptions that municipalities have operated under are, are, are going to change and change permanently. Um, how people are working is changing permanently. You know, I, I look at Ontario where there's a huge exodus out of Southern Ontario to the Maritimes of all places where, you know, better quality of life, cheaper real estate. Um, I'm working with a municipality right now who, uh, you know, small municipality, beautiful part of the country, um, who are really trying to build their own telecommunications infrastructure because they are looking for actively courting people who can work from anywhere, but need significant bandwidth in order to do so. So uh, um, I think how people work is going to change. I, I know many organizations, uh, I know many people now have much greater work at home options or alternate work arrangements. Uh, I think office spaces are going to, there's certainly going to be offices and office spaces, but I think how people work and how often they're commuting and going to more centralized uh, sort of employment locations is, is going to change forever. Um, and, and how people retail services, so many things mm -hmm. have changed. They were changing before the pandemic and it has served to simply accelerate changes in uh, in retail. One of the biggest shopping centers here in Victoria just changed hands and, um, and it'll, you know, it's anchored by some big big department stores that may not be around for a whole lot longer so uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with it but uh, main streets are changing uh, you know how, how people shop is are changing forever as a result of the pandemic uh, I think for municipal governments is going to be interesting in how they interact with the public and I know many uh, councils decided they would allow uh, you know remote uh, uh, submissions and, uh, and, and and public input during the pandemic and people are going to want to continue that they aren't going to want to have to troop down to you know to, mm -hmm. to city hall mm -hmm. at, at seven o'clock at night to make their point they're going to want to have uh, the same sorts of access that they had during the pandemic and i think most importantly um i think municipal workplaces are going to change and have to change i, I, I without naming the municipalities and getting myself in trouble i'm aware of two uh, completely adjacent municipalities in a major metropolitan area one of them has used the pandemic to massively expand their work at home opportunities for their staff. So staff who can work at home are now permanently able to spend, you know, two, three days at home, which is life changing. Mm -hmm. um, the immediately adjacent municipality wants everybody back in the office as fast as humanly possible, because if they're working from home, obviously they're goofing off and they aren't being productive. Wow. And, um, and that's just a dumb move. Uh, and the reality is that that second municipality is going to hemorrhage talented staff to the next door municipality because that is such a huge quality of life uh, uh, perk being able to work at home more often. So I, I think municipalities are really going to have to rethink their workforce. I, 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 I've been watching Brantford, Ontario, a friend of mine's the CAO there, uh, who've greatly expanded their work at home opportunities for their staff and figure they're going to save over a million dollars a year doing so. So, uh, so it's not just the quality of the work experience, there's some significant savings involved as well. So I really think, and I've just touched the surface there. I think many of the assumptions of how municipalities, you know, support the economy, how the economy works in, in big and small municipalities uh, is going to change and change permanently. But how municipalities themselves <clears throat> have to change how they interact with the public and how they support their staffs. So. 
Well, it's interesting because the inclusivity, the transparency, the inclusivity that local government um, wishes to have engagement of people. It's just so much easier for people when they can do it from home. And I know I've talked to a lot of people who are just going, you know, my core, one of my core values is family. And I've recognized that I've been missing out on my children's growing up and I've been able to be much more part of that. So I think there is going to be some interesting shifts. Uh, And of course the carbon footprint has got to be reduced by less people commuting, you know, especially you and I have worked on the North shore and there's not many people that can afford to live here. So um, you know, many people have a long commute. Um, so anyways, thank you for, uh, for sharing. And I, I agree with all of what you, you had to say. I'm going to take us back to the book. You talk about the difference between governance and management and that part of a CAO's responsibility is to ensure that that boundary is not blurred, right? Like where the elected officials begin to get in, engaged in the management um, aspects. When this be happens, when this happens, and I've seen it happen, <laughs> what do you recommend to correct that? And I know that there's lots of CAOs that will be very hanging on the edge of their seats waiting to hear what you have to say. They might be disappointed, Susan. Uh, it's a tough one. And uh, I, I do say in the book that um, I think it's the number one cause of dysfunction in, in municipalities is when that line gets blurred. Uh, and, and it can work both ways. It can be uh, elected officials who want to you know, get their fingers into management and operations. But I've also seen senior staff who get too deep into the politics mm, and, and, yeah. and, and, and start to play partisan politics or choose favorites, which is also very, very damaging. Um, it, it's a tough one to deal with because you're dealing with human nature and you're dealing with individual personalities. What I see far more commonly and uh, and I think happens far more commonly is it's you know the mayor who wants to be CAO and wants to be deep into operational and administrative decisions, or it's the member of council who wants to get their fingers into operations um, and uh, you know who, who wants to schedule the ice time at the arena and uh, uh and, and i've seen both and they're both mm-hmm. uh, hugely destructive and a big big drag on the organization first and foremost the cao you have to address it and i i i know it's hard to do but you simply have to sit down whether it's the mayor or a member of council and and and, and talk to them and say you know you are now um way out of your ballpark here this is not something that you're supposed to do uh and and have the tough conversations and i, I i'm you know been been quietly coaching a, a CAO recently who's in exactly that situation, had the conversation and it was quite effective. And it, it isn't mm-hmm. always. Uh, sometimes, you know, they can't help themselves. They got to keep trying to schedule the ice time at the arena. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but you, have to, you have to make an attempt. But it's also part of council's responsibility. It's not just the CAOs. And, uh, um, and I think it's incumbent for the CAO to sit down with the mayor or have an in-camera with council at some point and say, the boundaries are getting blurred here and it's not working mm-hmm. for anybody. And it's causing uh, a drain on the organization and it's causing all sorts of difficulty and conflict. Uh, so council as a whole has a responsibility to police this and to rein in members who are, are, are going across the, the boundary and, and engaging in things that they should uh, and and you know the reality is, as a CAO who works many many years in in, in municipal government, I don't have the expertise to schedule the ice time at the arena. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so a councillor sure as heck doesn't. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that's uh, that that's a really really important conversation. I think worst comes to worst, you need to bring in an outsider, uh, somebody who is independent and objective, and can sit council down, and sit the individuals down, and say this behavior has to stop. So I think there's there's a bit of an elevation. Start as a CAO, have the conversation with the individual members 
member of council who's, uh, uh, who's, who's crossing that boundary. Um, ask council, if that isn't successful, ask council to step in and, uh, and, and, and do their own uh, sort of governance responsibility of bringing mm -hmm. people back into the governance fold and out of operations. And if that doesn't work, bring in an outsider because you, you really have to take all the steps you can because if it does continue, it, it is really, really quite difficult. I, I, I literally, and I mentioned this in the book, I literally had a counselor at a meeting on the back of a piece of paper, try to design the elevator placement for a new building we were building and yeah, i remember that yeah and it you know he, he was not a, a a structural engineer but we spent mm -hmm. a good half hour uh talking about his elevator design at a council meeting until council finally did shut him down so uh, so it, it it is a huge source of dysfunction and it's one that is tough to deal with but you have to take escalating steps yeah thank you yes um i do recall that story and i've i uh Anyways, I appreciate your, your insights into that very challenging area of responsibility. You also write that staff have a responsibility to speak truth to power. Could you chat a little bit more about what you mean by this? Yeah, and I, I think this is something that is also commonly misunderstood, but um, as a, a senior staff member, and for that matter, as a planner or financial staff or HR staff in a municipality, you, you have to, from time to time, tell council things they don't want to hear. And uh, and you, you can do it professionally, uh, you should do it professionally, but that is a, a fundamental responsibility of your job, is to provide your best professional advice to uh, to council, uh, you know, individual councillors or council as a whole, um, even if they really, really don't want to hear it. And, and sometimes it is a function of making recommendations to them that puts them in really difficult political situation where they're going to have to make a decision where there's no winners. Somebody's going to be mad at them. And that's often takes the form of, you know, a, a report to council where staff are making a recommendation, again, based on their best professional advice that, you know, we sh you should approve, you know, this, this new development proposal that the community just hates. And, uh, and uh, council always has the right to not take staff's advice, but staff don't have the, the, the right not to provide it. And, uh, and, and I've said hundreds of times in my career when counselors sometimes get very upset at the recommendations we're making or the answers to questions or the advice we're providing, um, hundreds of times I've, I've stepped in and said, counsel, you know, we have an obligation to provide you with our best professional advice um, and we respect your right to take it or not take it, but mm -hmm. we have to provide you with our best professional advice. And, uh, uh, and often I've done that to rescue, you know, a staff member who's taking a beating because of some, uh, some sort of advice that they've provided. So, and, and it's, it's compounded by the fact that you do get new counselors sometimes who are quite surprised by this phenomenon, that their staff are going mm -hmm. to tell them things they don't want to hear. I, I've, I've mm -hmm. seen counselors who uh, absolutely expect staff to be obsequious yes people who are there, uh, you know, to make them happy and never make them uncomfortable, certainly never give them any political grief uh, or cause them any political mm -hmm. grief. So it's often a big learning curve for new members of council as well, that they, uh, um, they have an obligation to hear uh, the advice that they perhaps don't like. Um, but again, they've always got the right to say no and not accept it. So. And again, that's why your book is so fabulous, because anyone who is contemplating getting into municipal government gets a sense of that this is a responsibility. And go back to the, the elevator example. Yep. 
on the back of the sheet. Um, there are you know, experts that need to be providing that guidance. What happens when it's not a psychologically safe culture and, and that needing to be speak up? And I'm sure you've, you've been in that situation. Um, any tips on how best to proceed? Yeah, um, that, that, that's a tough one. Um, and, and, and certainly when I've been in cultures that weren't psychologically safe, um, it, it kind of comes down to one or two people uh, and, and that, that need to be dealt with. Now, if, if you're a CAO and it's a staff member um, and you have people in the organization who are causing the culture to feel unsafe or causing individuals to feel unsafe, you just have to deal with them. And, uh, and I'm always surprised, always surprised um, how often that doesn't happen, how often uh, bullies and uh, people who are cancers in an organization seem to hang in there for years and years and years and nobody addresses their behavior. And yet everybody knows uh, that this person is poisoning the culture of the organization and, uh, and, and making a mockery of any respectful workplace policy. So one of, one of the first things I do when I go into a new organization is I have a confidential conversation with the, the head of HR and said, you know, where are your thickest files in terms of problem employees and why haven't they been dealt with? And then we go through the appropriate professional process of dealing with them. But uh, uh, now, now if, if it's a member of council who is creating uh, sort of an unsafe, uh, psychologically unsafe uh, sort of culture and climate, that's a lot more difficult to deal with. And, and, I, and I've certainly faced that more than once. And, uh, uh, and again, um, it, it's, it's about having a respectful workplace policy, but more importantly, it's about enforcing it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I have mm -hmm. had uh, more than once you know, in-camera conversations with counsel where I've had to sit down and say, these sorts of behaviors are happening that are completely contrary to your respectful workplace policy. What are you going to do about it? Because you're the ones who have to enforce this, not me. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's your respectful workplace policy. And I give them examples and say, you know, that should never happen. And, and I've had to have, as I'm sure many CAOs have, you know, really uncomfortable one-on-one -on -one conversations with members of council and said, you know, last night you were a jerk to one of my staff and it can't happen again. And, and yeah. To their great credit, the vast majority of time they go, yeah, I was, and, and they apologize, and they apologize mm -hmm. to the staff member. But, uh, but I've had really, really, really difficult people who were absolutely toxic, members of council who are absolutely toxic. And at the end of the day, you know, sometimes council has to censor them and, uh, and has to take pretty extreme action and remove them from committees. Um, I've seen mayors expel councillors from the meetings uh, because they, you know, they're, they're being rude and abusive to staff or to fellow council members so uh, uh, and I've I've gone through in, in one extreme case this is actually a member of council you probably remember uh, in North Van District who was really abusive to staff we went through mediation uh, and, uh, and and got a third party mediator to help us work through a code of conduct uh, for the member of council so uh, again it's one of those things that um, Sometimes the path of least resistance is to ignore it, and yet that is massively damaging to the organization if you choose not to act. Yeah, no, absolutely, and thank you. As an HR professional, I appreciated that you positioned the HR lead in the organization as being a direct report to the CAO, as you've outlined in the book. Um, what is your why for this? Um, I, I'll say this as a personal preference. Um, well, let me let me step back a little bit. In the book, I say, look how 
uh, sort of the senior leadership of a municipality is structured is really to some extent the preference of, of the CAO. Um, and but but I do have a really strong bias that the that the head of HR should report directly to the CAO, not through uh, you know a general manager of corporate services or something like that. And and for a couple of reasons. One, first of all, I've always personally needed a confidant and somebody who knows the organization, knows the personalities, and the director or the lead HR person is sort of by definition uh, somebody who deals with confidential sensitive measure issues on a day-to-day -day basis. And I've had the huge fortune to work with uh, HR professionals and leaders who uh, I, you know, I, I absolutely trusted in some cases became lifelong friends because we had that sort of relationship uh, to whom I could vent about things that were making me crazy, um, but also to whom I could have really critical conversations about the culture, about individual performance, about how individuals were perceived in the organization. Uh, and, and, and the other dynamic is that when things really hit the fan in municipal government, there's almost always some element of an HR component. And, uh, and, and uh, there's often a legal one too. So my other preference was to have, if there's an in-house solicitor, have the solicitor mm -hmm. report to me as well, because it's surprising how many things have both a legal and an HR implication yeah. uh, if it's a really, really serious issue or problem that has to be addressed. So again, some of it's quite selfish. I, I, I really wanna have a, a confidant and somebody who I can, talk to very, very candidly about what I'm thinking about. Um, and, uh, and, and part of it is more practical in that um, when things go crazy in a municipality, you really are going to need your HR lead to help sort through the mess. So. It's certainly my bias. So I guess I should put that out there too. <laughs> okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch a little bit here. You arrived at the City of Toronto shortly after their amalgamation. Um, and I believe that was something that was mandated by the province. It wasn't something that the individual municipalities had chosen. You know in your book that the cost savings that had been promised did not come to fruition at all because all the variables tended to resolve up, including the terms of all the collective agreements that needed to be amalgamated or consolidated. I know that the amalgamation of the city and the district of North Vancouver has been a topic of discussion for decades and certainly during the time that both you were with the district and I was with the city. Do you think Toronto was unique or would you envision a, a North Vancouver experience probably similar to Toronto's? Um, I, I, I don't think Toronto was unique and I've, I've um, been an amateur student of municipal amalgamations ever since I went through that dreadful process. Um, you're right, the, the, the savings that were estimated really didn't materialize. All the collective agreements got harmonized up to the highest level, service levels got harmonized up, uh, and you ended up with um, a, a city that was so big it was almost unmanageable. And uh, um, about a year after the amalgamation, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, we had Henry Mintzberg, the famous management professor from McGill, come to speak to the 30 most senior staff in the city. And we'd sent him all of our org charts and everything in advance. And he, and he opened his session and said something to the effect, you know, I hate to tell you this, but this isn't going to work. 
Um, he said, you know, this is, you know, we have 40,000 staff. We had a council of 52 and a mayor at the time. Wow. Um, and he said, I haven't seen anything like this until sort of, you know, 18th, 19th century conglomerates. Um, and he said, I, I, I just don't know how you manage or govern something like this, which was really quite depressing. So <laughs> they, they created a, a, a monster in Toronto. And um, I, I, so I don't think the the, the financial benefits. I look at Montreal, I look at Hamilton, I look at Ottawa, where there were similar amalgamations around the same time, again, forced by the provincial government. And, and the projected savings simply didn't materialize. So the province ultimately stepped in and started mandating uh, collective agreements, precisely because they all got harmonized up. So, uh, uh, so, so I'm not sure that bigger is better. I'm not sure that there are huge savings. And there are clearly, clearly downsides. Um, in Toronto, every single people leadership position from supervisor and manager and up, everybody was new. And, uh, and, and everybody, you didn't know any of your peers or colleagues, all of your informal networks, who do I call in IT to get this problem fixed? Or who mm -hmm. do I call in HR? Everything was broken. So you started from scratch, um, building all of your informal networks in the organization, getting to know your colleagues. Uh, and, and, and that takes a long, long time to rebuild. And, mm -hmm. and then perhaps the most important lesson out of Toronto that I, I, I think is important for anybody considering um, uh, amalgamation is we did not pay attention to the culture uh, and, uh, and a really unhealthy culture from one of the former municipalities predominated. Uh, and it resulted in, in corruption, in scandal, in a judicial inquiry. Uh, and uh, because in this one particular municipality, it was okay to take gifts from, from vendors and contractors and golf with suppliers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that, that, that culture became reasonably pervasive in the new amalgamated city and caused huge reputational and financial damage at the end of the day and cost people their careers. So um, I, I, I don't think it's, I, I find the explanations and arguments for amalgamations are always really simplistic, but the actual, the actual reality of going through a municipal amalgamation is far from simplistic and it has long lasting consequences. So. I think uh, Surrey with their RCMP versus the municipal police force is probably going through some of those same challenges. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they yeah, are. On, yeah. on a smaller scale. You note in the Municipal World podcast that the CAO is the shock absorber between staff and council, that there's there's only so much that you can do, though, when candidates get elected on platforms that, for example, trash staff and how the organization is currently being run. I know I was impacted by the negativity of one of those campaigns. What have you seen effective or what have you implemented in organizations that to keep staff engaged during those trying election periods? Yeah, uh Boy, Susan, I wish I had brilliant insights and advice. To, this one really worries me. Um, I, you know, I'm increasingly worried that if you are, uh, you know, slick on social media, um, you know, comfortable with not telling the truth and able to scare, you know, the old folks who vote, you can get yourself elected these days. Um, and and I've, I'm just seeing that over and over again, where people are, you know, getting elected on platforms that are just patently dishonest. 
and 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 absolutely intended to frighten people. And uh, and yes, they're running against city hall uh, as the outsider is going to be the broom and fix things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And unfortunately, it tends to work. And social media is uh, simply a, a toxic accelerant for all of that, where it becomes personal and nasty and dishonest and ultimately kind of deranged. Uh, you know, I, I dealt with. I, I, I had a. Um, uh, leading into or the months in advance to the 2018 election in, in, in Burlington, um, rumors circulated on social media that a developer had taken the entire planning staff to Mexico over the Christmas holidays. Um, <laughs> patly untrue, and they didn't invite me, which was really distressing. But, uh, you know, just, just a crazy stuff, and yet people were believing this, that, that mm. the, the whole planning department of 30 odd people had been jetted off to Mexico by a developer. Uh, and, you know, and, and you know, I, I, I talk about the, in, in the book, the bullshit asymmetry phenomena, and that is, you know, it takes mm -hmm. 10 times as much energy to refute bullshit as to generate it. And, and, and that's what we're up against now, particularly dealing with social media. So I, you know, my, my job, and this, this is, it's a tough one, is, is to protect staff from that. So, you know, I pushed mm -hmm. back, threatened a lawsuit against a community organization who on their website accused the entire planning department of professional misconduct. Um, and, and I took huge heat and abuse for, for doing that, but mm -hmm. I had to. Um, I had to protect my staff. You can't make absolutely defamatory claims on a website about my staff. <laughs> I'm coming after you. It's that simple. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I, during an election that was particularly nasty, I wrote an email to staff um, and uh, that got widely circulated in the media saying, we have your back. Don't don't mm -hmm. let this crap get you down. Much of it is untrue. And I got fired for that email. So once the wow. election was over, I lost my job. And uh, But I had to write that email. I had to protect my staff. And mm -hmm. it inf infuriated some people who ultimately got elected. So because they knew I was talking about them. And uh, mm -hmm. But y you have to do that. And it's really nasty. I, I, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit here, but I'm increasingly concerned because I'm, I know really talented senior municipal staff who don't want to be a CAO anymore. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. They don't want the job because they don't want the, the, the political exposure and they don't want the media exposure. You know, I, you, you don't have to Google my name much before you hear, read outrageous and untrue and incredibly nasty things about me. And I've got thick skin. It really bugs my wife, but mm -hmm. I, you know, it, it, it's really difficult. And, I have a mechanism to push back on that. Junior staff don't. So, so your obligation as a CAO, like it or not, is to protect your staff from that and and push back where you can because uh, it's it's tough times. And I, I do worry. And we're you know you look south of the border and elsewhere. I do worry about the damage that populism and social media are doing to you know the quality of of, of governance in at every level of government. And it's certainly creeping into municipal government these days. Wow. And it's because of the actions that people like you take that I would follow you. And I'm sure that, that there are others because, you know, somebody who will indeed watch our backs and who will exhibit those kind of leadership qualities um, is the person that I want to work with. And so, but how sad that in doing that, um, you paid the ultimate price. Oh, well, it's, I wear it as a badge of honor, Susan. So. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to go to something fun. Um, in your book, you provide information about the roles and responsibilities of, of the various staff departments, which I found was quite interesting. And again, somebody coming into the sector would find that interesting. 
And, and I love how you add your own lessons and, and true tales. I love your candor and your honesty. You mentioned one of the wackiest calls was when you worked in Toronto and a woman called demanding that you send a bylaw officer to her mother's home to order her to clean her house for Christmas. <laughs> and, and I know listening to some of the, um, uh, the wonderful people in, in our 911 call center, our dispatchers, some of the zany calls that they get. Any others that you can recollect? I've always oh, promised wow. some fun on this podcast. So. There's some, yeah, there, there, there are a few. Um, I, I do talk in the book about another one where uh, two families adjacent properties they had a big wall brick wall between the two properties and there, there was a massive neighbor dispute and they got to flinging dog poop over the wall into uh um in, into the other person's yard Ooh. neighbor's yard and then they would fling it back and uh, <laughs> uh and we we tried to get mediation going but as one of my staff said very wisely once the poop starts flying uh you know mediation is probably not going to be that successful and i and sure enough it wasn't so that that was one i remember well but we we, we get a lot that are uh, a function of people's taste uh you know somebody paints their house day glow pink and the neighbors are phoning going you have to stop them you have to tell them to paint it a different color and you really can't and uh, but i i do remember one which was um this this couple, uh, older couple, they must have had four to 500 garden gnomes in their front yard. Uh, they had, you know, three footers and six footers and little tiny ones. And, uh, and it was a fairly, you know, nice upscale neighborhood. And the neighbors mm -hmm. were just beside themselves about these hundreds and hundreds of garden gnomes. And, uh, and I personally went out to have a look and it was, it's, it's one of those things you never forget because they're, <laughs> These people really love their garden gnomes, and yeah. there, there was, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing yeah. at all you can do about uh, their garden gnome collection. But I, I had some empathy, and and I, I personally would love to see a bylaw where you know if you don't take your Christmas lights down by Easter, you go to prison for some lengthy period of time. But unfortunately, we can't do that. So, so yeah, we got a when I ran bylaw enforcement in Toronto, we we had a lot of very, very, very strange calls, and a lot of them were things we just said, sorry, we can't help you with your, you know, your neighbor's taste in paint color. So <laughs> actually, that's a nice segue to my next question. And it's about employment and local government. You mentioned in the Municipal World podcast that when you were working as the registrar at UBC, what you experienced is that working within local government was not within people's top 100 employment considerations. I think you were particularly working with youth. I know it wasn't for me um, either. It's something I'd never even considered. And yet even smaller municipalities offer jobs in just about every sector. We're talking about administration, engineering, operations, parks, finance, HR, planning, facilities, rec services, culture, and relative employment stability as well. I know the pandemic has, has uh, muddied that a little bit, but, but more typically. Any thoughts personally about why this considered it, it continues to not be considered a popular um, potential career path. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it, one, one, one of my thoughts, somewhat facetious thoughts was um, uh, unlike a lot of other careers, you know, law and medicine and other things, there aren't great TV shows about it, but, but we do now have parks and recreation. So uh, there is finally a really good municipal government TV show. Uh, to, uh, and, and 
I, it's, so that's that's a bit facetious. I I'm I'm was like you. I had no idea that I would end up in municipal government. I sort of stumbled into it when I got hired into Toronto during the amalgamation, um, and. Uh, I, and I think other than, you know, police and fire and perhaps land use planning, people go to university or, or go to college or take professional training and really have no interest or idea that they would end up in, in municipal government or working for municipal government. I really think it comes down to we don't do a good job uh, in, in marketing it. And, you know, I, I, I look at uh, career days at universities and colleges and the big companies are there and the law firms and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there's simply no hint of municipal government. Um, an important exception to that was the city of Vancouver, who for, for many, many years had a really excellent career program for civil engineers uh, going through UBC uh, and uh, and into the city of Vancouver, but most municipalities simply don't do that, and it's um, uh, and and they should. Um, I think, as you said, there's really interesting work in a huge range of professional fields, and it's fascinating work. You know, it beats the hack out of making widgets somewhere, or you know, selling beer. Um, you're, you're you're contributing to. Oh, I shouldn't denigrate people who sell beer. I know people who do that, but uh, um, you know, you're contributing to your community. You've got a way, an opportunity to make a difference in ways that very few other careers offer. And yet as uh, municipal governments and our provincial and federal organizations, I don't think we do enough to go out there and really um, talk to people who are going into university and college and, and trades and other types of training about uh, the huge opportunities that are available. You know, 3,500 municipalities in, in Canada, hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of jobs, and yeah. uh, and and we do vert other other than when it becomes vacant and we put an ad out through the normal job boards, mm -hmm. we we really are doing little or nothing as uh, as a public a, a segment of the public sector to get people excited about coming to work for us. So I, I think we're our own worst enemy in terms of um, of that. And you're right uh, when people were coming into UBC when I was registrar there, working in municipal government wasn't in the top 100 of what people um, sort of anticipated would be their, their their career. It just wasn't even remotely on anybody's radar. And, and they might to get get to go out and look at hundreds of gnomes on a front lawn someday. Where else do you get to do that? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> or deal with people flinging poop over walls. Yeah. That's, that's true. That's true. I want to turn to that um, environmental climate change piece. You mentioned and have talked earlier about how local government has probably got the best opportunity of ensuring that positive changes are in place to deal with our climate change concerns. Um, can you talk a little bit more? I'm, I know the programs and the initiatives that are taking place. Um, again, our listeners might not. Um, it's an incredibly important topic and Turn yeah. it over to you to share a little bit more, please. Um, you know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll just relay quickly a story I told, uh, opened my book with actually, and that was when I did my master's of public admin many years ago, I did a, a seminar in policy instruments, all the tools that every level of government has to affect change in some way. And the professor started it by us. I was the only municipal government person in the seminar, started by asking what's the single most important and powerful policy instrument at any level of government. My federal government colleagues were often equalized and this and foreign policy. And he said, no, it's municipal land use planning. And, uh, and they were quite outraged and disgusted that us hillbillies in municipal government would, you know, have this powerful tool. But he said, you know, 85 
more than 85% of Canadians live in cities and towns uh, and, and how municipal governments um, regulate land use um, actually creates the social, economic, cultural, and climate realities of the entire country, one municipality at a time. And they last for decades or centuries. You know, those land use decisions shape the economy and social fabric of communities for, for many, many, many years. And this is particularly true of climate change. And, uh, you know, the federal government and provincial government have really important roles to play. But it, once again, it really comes down to municipalities. Land use, um, again, that, that, that incredibly powerful policy instrument, how, how that is used by municipalities densification, you know, slowly phasing out single family homes, allowing people to walk to, to, to services rather than, yeah. uh, than, than drive, um, having a, an affordable mix of housing so that, uh, you know, service workers and public sector workers like the North Shore don't have to commute from, you know, many, many miles away. So how, how, how municipalities regulate their land use has huge, huge impact on climate change mitigation. Similarly mm -hmm. with transportation, how do people move around, active transportation, transit, et cetera. Uh, infrastructure, um, uh, you know, Vancouver has the rare ability to set its own building code and has done some really, really bold, bold things with its building code around sustainability. Uh, so so the, the municipalities have these really, really powerful levers. The challenge is they're politically hard to use. And uh, whether, you know, if you're converting roads into bike lanes, you know, there will be people objecting. If you're mm -hmm. allowing densification in single family home neighborhoods, there will be political hell to pay for that. Mm -hmm. so, so it's politically difficult, but the tools are there with municipal government. That's mitigation. If you look at climate change adaptation, actually dealing with the effects of climate change, whether it is, you know, migration, immigration, more severe weather events, um, um, that entirely falls to municipal yeah. governments at the end of the day. So as, you know, whether it's changing the economy or agriculture or whatever, uh, municipalities are going to have to manage that. And, you know, we've seen that over and over again with severe, severe weather events, fires, uh, uh, droughts, etc. So uh, local government is the government that is going to have the most powerful effect in mitigating climate change and absolutely is going to be responsible for for adapting to climate change and uh, which again you know is why i think municipal leadership has to be really really good and focused and diligent and ethical about the leadership that they provide and also exciting because it's i think a, a growing need for people working to be contributing and to do be doing something positive and knowing that their work is making a difference so again, in local government, absolutely, uh, every yep. decision that's being made is having to take those kinds of considerations uh, in mind. You are one of the most respected CAOs that I've known, um, and this month's podcast is about leadership. What do you think makes a good leader? Well, first, thank you for that very, very kind comment. Um, I, I've had the good fortune to work for some really extraordinary leaders and people who've, you know, I've, I've looked up to, who I've learned lessons from, who've taken an interest in, in me and supported my career. And, and I think there are a few things, three things really, and they're interconnected in a way that, that are I, all of these people shared. Uh, one, they were deeply principled. Um, they were, uh, you know, they, they had a, a core set of values that they were not going to violate. 
period. Um, you know, I work for Jack Layton. I work for Jim Flaherty. Um, and at opposite ends of the political spectrum, hugely respected them both. Both of them superb leaders. Both of them died way too young. And and they they were both deeply, deeply principled individuals. Um, Jim founded in his Catholic faith. Uh, Jack, you know, a very, very progressive individual. Um, and uh, and yet they were both superb leaders because they were grounded in, in those core principles mm -hmm. and, and, and acted ethically when they needed to. Um, the great leaders can communicate a vision for the organization, can get people excited about, you know, where the organization needs to be in three years and five years and 10 years and can communicate that and get people focused. And again, the great leaders I've worked for have all been really superb at that. You, you, you want to be part of the the, the whole journey you want to work with them you, you want to help them be successful they they you know they want you to be successful uh, and finally the great leaders i work for without exception uh care for the people who work for them you know they're steward mm -hmm. leaders uh mm -hmm. and they, they 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 put their staff ahead of their own careers and uh uh that's i i i don't think you can be a good leader without that uh, and and at the end of the day all, all of those things come down to moral courage and uh the, the you know the willingness to you know put your staff ahead of your own interests to uh uh you know to to, to act eth ethically when it's really really difficult to do so and you know i've I, and I talk about this in the book at some length. You, as a CAO, you are constantly handed opportunities to throw your staff under the bus, <laughs> and uh, you know, you know, and 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 if you do so, you've just you know abdicated your responsibility as a leader. You really have. So it's and it's difficult in, in municipal government because things go wrong. Uh, you're mm -hmm. in you know even a small municipality, you're in 30, 40 lines of business, and stuff happens, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, and and it. it you, you need to take responsibility for it. We had, you know, reports that would go to council that really probably shouldn't have gone to council that weren't all that well written. And at the end of the day, I've had councillors, you know, start to beat up on the staff and I have to jump in and say, council, mine was the last signature on that report. And it's my report, I'm accountable. And if there's flaws in it, it's my responsibility. So uh, that's, that's the sort of thing I think good leaders do. And I've certainly tried to do through my career, but yeah, it's tough. <laughs> Yeah, and thank you. You nice, nicely answered my by the question that was I was going to follow up with that. So I'm going to move to the next one. Um, I've talked in previous podcasts about um, internal gremlins that get in the way of becoming the best versions that who we are and what we're capable of. That negative self-talk um, and negative past experiences that are sometimes hard for us as individuals to move forward from. As a CAO, are you ever plagued with this? And if so, what do you do to move forward from that? Oh, always plagued with that. And uh, um, yeah, one of the, I, I've talked about it a little bit, but I, I think it's an important dynamic. In municipal government, you are, as a CAO, you're responsible for, again, easily 30 to 40 really distinct lines of business from planning to rinks to cemeteries to, you know, you name it, um, your fire departments, you're in these wildly diverse services. And as a CAO in a small municipality, you are going to have a broader, more diverse set of responsibilities than a deputy minister in a big ministry in provincial government. You just are. And uh, uh, so, so it's really, really, really challenging for people to lead and manage in, in when, when you've got so many different services. The dynamic that comes with that is you have to have a really, really high level of delegation and trust. And, uh, uh, and, and that's something that I know people have come in. I know people have come into uh, 
senior positions in municipal government from other sectors and really struggle with that. And because they've been able to have their fingers deep into various parts of the organization, have some technical knowledge of, of you know, the, the various services that are being provided. And in municipal government, if you try to do that in 30 or 40 different lines of business, you're just going to be a disaster. And so yeah. you, you have to trust people. And you have to develop, I think, in parallel, some really powerful and, and effective instincts about the other people leaders in your direct reports and, you know, who's, who's absolutely reliable and superbly competent, who's still learning and might need support. And, uh, and and work through decisions and who's just bluffing and uh, and and really needs to you know their, their leadership to be addressed in, in in some manner so so I I constantly struggled with am I on top of what's going on in parks and rec am I am I you know, mm. do I have total confidence in the person leading that? Am I getting bamboozled here about stuff? And and yet I don't have the time to actually get mm -hmm. deep into operations. It's really all about um, my level of trust and my instincts about people's competence and abilities. And yeah. uh, uh, and that certainly kept me awake a lot at, at night. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but it's also what I love about municipal government is, yeah, yeah. you know, one minute you're dealing with a cemetery issue and the next minute you're dealing with a planning issue and the next minute it's bike lanes. And uh, that's what <laughs> makes it such a fascinating place to work. But it also makes it a really, really challenging place to be an effective manager and leader. So. Yeah. What's your mo what's your proudest moment looking back over your career? I don't know if it's a moment or 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 I've you know that that it's a great question. I, I think what I'm most proud of, and it's not a single thing, it's the people I mentored and the people who, you know, I've had a chance to shape or help them grow their career in some way. And and, and it's especially true of people, you know, I've had a few people in my career, probably more than a few who I I think I saw more potential in them than they saw them in themselves. And when you're able to sort of awaken people to their own potential and see them really thrive and take off and, and, and you know, have a, uh, a career that they didn't imagine they could have. And I've, I've had the benefit of that in my life. I've had wonderful people who saw potential in me that I didn't see myself. So, so that's something I'm most proud of. I'm still in touch with many, many people. I still, yeah. you know, sometimes it's just, can you be a reference for me? Which actually I'm doing a lot of recently for some reason, but uh, um, I think it's the whole COVID thing. People are re-examining their, uh, their, their their employment and who they're working for. So, uh, but but that's that's what I'm most proud of. I think when I look back at my career, I'll go, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of individuals right now wow. whose career I, I, I think I played a role in and that's, that's yeah. always so rewarding, so. Wow, that's fabulous. Your book. Yes. And I know that I know that the pandemic has been chaos in launching books. What have you planned post pandemic? Are you going to do a book tour? Are we going to see you speaking in front of us anywhere? How do we find out about that? Well, I, I certainly hope so. Um, uh, yes, a, 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 an important part of my contract with Municipal World is that I go to conferences and do panels and presentations, etc. And I love doing that. Um, and and I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing it in person. I, I did a presentation to about 50 Ontario CAOs, oh, seven, eight months ago now, and uh, uh, via Zoom. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I told what I thought were funny stories and just cricket 
crickets because you know <laughs> I'm not getting feedback from anybody. <laughs> it was really Hard, quite a. Yeah. It was it, until I noticed the the text on the side where people were saying kind things about what I was saying. But uh, I'm really looking forward to in person conferences, and that is how my book generally gets marketed or how Municipal World markets mm -hmm. their uh, their books and publications. Uh, and I just am looking forward to you know getting out and meeting with uh, municipal government colleagues and uh, you know past, present, and, and future. So it's uh, uh, that that's where you'll see me as soon as there, uh, those conferences start again. Uh, I will be there. So. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So if people are interested in connecting with you, all your contact information is on the show notes to this podcast. I'll make sure that there's a link to Municipal World as well, so that people can purchase your book. And I can't say enough about it. I and again wish I'd read it much, much earlier in my career. Uh, any last nuggets to leave before we bring this podcast to a conclusion? I, I know I'm a broken record on this, but I, I you know, I'm, I think we all acknowledge the importance of climate change. And uh, I just think, you know, for, for decades and decades and decades, municipal government has provided the services that really shape the quality of life in a community and uh, in ways that I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate. And, you know, we provide uh, through through recreation and active transportation and parks, uh, you know, real real important uh, contributions to public health dynamics. And and uh, you know, I've I've said for many years, you know, when you look at, you know, two of the most important public health innovations in human history are, are the provision of of safe drinking water and dealing with solid and liquid waste, which mm -hmm. municipal governments do. And uh, and if those were suddenly to disappear, we'd all be dying at 40 again, right? Because mm -hmm. those are truly massive public health services. And and so so for years and years and years, municipalities have, have really created the quality of life and public safety and public health uh, in a community. And now they have now they have right squarely in their laps the climate change mandate. And uh, so again, that's why I wrote the book in in large part is it is so important that municipal leaders are bold and brave and act ethically and look long-term rather than short-term political gain. Uh, and, th and that's really hard. It's a tough discussion, but we really need our municipal leaders, whether they are elected or senior staff, to be the best public servants out there because they've got the most responsible and important job out there. So there's my rant. That's, it's a wonderful rant and it's something I, I too, in my work with local government have just the wonderful people that truly want to serve uh, our communities. And what I love about the podcast and through your book and being able to provide this forum for more people to learn uh, potentially as a career, um, understanding a little bit more about what local governments do and um, yeah, just some of the challenges that um, working within the sector can, uh, can surface. James, I am so appreciative of your making the time for uh, this podcast today uh, for, for myself and for the listeners. Uh, and I'm delighted to be able to connect in with you again. A great excuse to find out more about you and, and learn about the book and what you're up to now. Um, from James and I, I just want to say we hope that you found today's podcast session interesting and a little bit fun to listen to. Um, I will be back again next week. I hope you'll join me again as you guessed it, dare to soar. It's time for James and I to fly. James, thank you again. 
Thanks so much, Susan. I've really enjoyed this and, and, and I'm quite honored to be part of it. <laughs> Susan and James, signing out. Thank you. Uh, bye for now. All the best, everybody. Well, we've reached our destination for today. Time to lower those wheels and prepare for landing. Thank you for joining me. If I said something that resonated with you, please subscribe to the podcast and to share it with others. It would be awesome if you also took the time to provide a review, whatever your favorite social media sites are. If you have a question or an area that you hope I'll cover in a future session, please send me a note, either to my website, www.effectingchangefromwithin.com or to my email, susangene at gmail.com. I look forward to our next time together. In the meantime, soar high. I believe you can. Susan signing off. Thanks again for joining me.